Welcome back to Shnai Mikra, the OU podcast series on Parshat HaShavua. This is Menachem Liptag, and this week we begin our study of Parshat Korach. I have the privilege this week of sharing the study of the Parsha together with Rabbi Weinreb. I will be beginning the Parsha, and Rabbi Weinreb will continue the second half. We begin in chapter 16 in Perak Zion with the famous opening line. Vayikach Korach, Benitzah ben Kad ben Levi, V'datan v'aviram b'nei Eliav, Von ben Pelet, b'nei Ruvein. Anyone familiar with this pasuk is aware of its ambiguity. It simply says that Korach took, followed by a list of other people, and it's very unclear what Korach did. What did he take or who did he take? Rashi offers two directions. Either that Korach took himself to a side to divide himself and argue with others, or that he took others with him. And that would explain the rest of the sentence. He took Datan and Aviram and others in order to begin an uprising against Moshe. What I'd like to point out, and we'll follow this approach as we study this week's parsha, is noticing the Torah's intentional ambiguity in this opening line. Chumash knows how to be precise when it wants to. When Chumash writes a sentence like this, leaving the reader totally confused in regard to what he took, I think what Chumash wants the reader to do is ask himself the question, what is it that Korach took? Because as we're going to see, it's very complicated to figure out what is it that he wants. We know for sure that Korach complains. The big question is, what is he complaining about and what does he want? In other words, if Korach could have whatever he wanted, what would he ask for? Does he want to take over instead of Moshe? Does he want Moshe demoted? Is he calling for open elections? It's not clear exactly what he wants other than the fact that he's complaining. As we study this week's Parsha, especially the opening Aliyot, we'll try to figure out what is it that Korach wants and what's behind this revolt. Pasik Betna will continue and give us an insight in regard to who these people are and what they want. This group stood up in front of Moshe. Together with 250 members of the children of Israel. And now we have a modifier who these people are. These are princes of the congregation. These are community members who were assembled in times of need. In other words, these are the important people of the nation. And Sheshem, men of renown. There's two ways to understand this pasuk. Either that Korach, Datan, and Aviram, these are the three important community leaders who everyone knows and hears about, and they have 250 followers. Or Korach, Datan, and Aviram are very important people. They have 250 community leaders who join together with them. And if we have 250 community leaders together with three very important people, that would imply that they have a very large following, probably of thousands of people. How we're going to understand the magnitude of this revolt depends on this consideration. In other words, are we dealing with a revolt of some 250 people with three leaders? Or are we dealing with an uprising of 250 community leaders from all the different tribes, most likely with thousands of followers? As we're going to see, it will become quite clear that all the 250 are the community leaders, and Moshe has a major uprising to deal with. This group of people gathered against Moshe and Aaron. They said and challenged Moshe and Aaron, You've taken too much for yourselves. The entire congregation, everyone is holy. And God is in the midst of everyone. And why are you putting yourselves above the rest of the nation of Israel? As we saw before, Chumash is ambiguous 
in regard to what their complaint is. They're simply saying, you've taken too much upon yourselves, claiming that everyone is holy, but what are they asking for? We'll try to ascertain that as we continue our study. Pasuk Dalet, Vayishma Moshe Vayipol Apanav. Moshe heard this complaint and he falls on his face. This is not the first time the Moshe Rabbeinu has fallen on his face in Sefer Bamidbar. It also will not be the last time. As Rashi points out, Moshe Rabbeinu falls on his face in despair because the last three times he's prayed for the people when they've complained. But this time, the fourth time they're complaining, he doesn't even pray for them. Rashi notices that Moshe Rabbeinu's reaction is quite different than it was in the sin of the golden calf and in the sin of the spies and in the sin of the mitonanim. This relates to the topic of leadership in Sefer Bamidbar, which is beyond the scope of our study of today's Aliyah. However, it's something worth paying attention to. There are two general approaches how to understand this phrase when Moshe falls on his face. Is it falling on your face in prayer like we have nowadays in Filat Tapaim, when someone falls on their face, it implies turning to God and prayer to God? Or is it simply falling on your face because there's nothing to do? As we continue with the next several psukim, we'll try to suggest a different explanation here for what happened. Look in Pasuke. Moshe now, in response to their complaint, is going to suggest a solution to what they're asking for. Moshe tells Korach as follows. Tomorrow in the morning, God will let us know who belongs to him. And he who is holy and who will bring him closer to him. And he that God chooses, he will bring closer to him. Zotasu, this is what you do. Take for yourselves fire pans. Korach Korach and his entire congregation. Moshe Rabbeinu suggests now that they come tomorrow morning to the Mishkan with fire pans and we're going to find out who God has chosen. Let's see what the test will include. Put fire on these machtot, on these fire pans, and put on this fire ktoret, in front of God tomorrow in the Mishkan. The person that God will choose, he will be the Holy One. Rav Lechem Levi, Moshe now, in response to what Korach said, Rav Lechem, Moshe responds back now, you, B'nai Levi, have taken too much upon yourselves. We're going to return to this Pasuk soon, but let's go back and understand the context. Moshe Rabbeinu is now suggesting a test to solve the complaint that Korach is raising. Korach claims that Moshe and Aaron have taken too much upon themselves because everyone is holy. And now Moshe Rabbeinu suggests, here's how we're going to answer your question about your complaint. Whose idea is it to perform this test? Is Moshe coming up with this test idea on his own? Or did God tell him to perform this test? It's very unclear from the Psukim. It never says here that God speaks to Moshe. In fact, God does not intervene in the story as far as our narrative is concerned until Pasachaf, Nato Shlishi, the third Aliyah. But it could be that when Moshe fell on his face, if he's falling on his face in prayer to God, it could be that when he fell on his face and turned to God, God offered Moshe Rabbeinu this solution and told Moshe, here's how we're going to solve the problem. That's one direction, and if that's true, that would explain Pasek Dalad of Moshe falling on his face before offering this suggestion. And hence, it's not so much in despair, but rather turning to God for direction. How do we deal with this? The other possibility is that Moshe Rabbeinu comes up with this idea on his own. And then, if that's the case, the question is going to be, why does Moses suggest this test 
Is he aware of the consequences? Is he aware that those who bring the Ktorot are going to die when they perform this test? That's again another question we have to follow as we study the Aliyah. If we go back now to Pasuk Zayin, what are the possible outcomes of this test? What does Moshe Rabbeinu say? Put fire and Ktorot on these fire pans and come to the Mishkan tomorrow and then The person that God will choose, he will be the Holy One. How many possible outcomes are there for this test? Is this a test to find out who is going to be the leader? In other words, the candidates are Moshe, Aaron, and Korach, or maybe any one of these 250. And tomorrow, God will pick only one firepan, only one machta with Ktorat, and that will be the person who will become the leader of the nation of Israel, if the topic is about leadership. It doesn't seem to be that case, because Moshe himself does not participate in this test. Or is it possible that more than one person can win this test. In other words, could it be that all 250 people could be considered Kadosh? That seems to be the most logical explanation and that fits into Korach's complaint. Korach is saying, you've taken too much upon yourselves because everyone is Kadosh. This would imply that if everyone is Kadosh, everyone can bring a Korban. We saw in Sefer Vayikra that Bnei Aaron have a higher level of Kedusha because they are enabled to offer the sacrifices to God but no one else can offer sacrifices. It could be that Korach is challenging that decision that only Aaron and his children are given the right to offer the sacrifices. Therefore, the 250 people from all the tribes of Israel are joining Korach in not a complaint against Moshe Rabbeinu, but rather a complaint against Aaron and the Kohanim. And they claim Moshe's decision, or what they think is Moshe's decision, that only his brother and his nephews, only they are permitted to bring Korbanot, they don't accept that, and they think that everyone in Am Yisrael should be able to bring a korban. Moshe's response is straightforward. You know what? He tells Korach and his congregation, try it. Come tomorrow, everyone can bring a korban. You can bring Torah, which should be the safest korban, because Torah protects us from the Shekhinah. Therefore, the test is straightforward. All 250 complainers can come to the Omoed, everyone can bring the Torah. And it could be that God will accept all these korbanot. And that will prove that everyone can bring a korban. Or it could be maybe only certain tribes can bring a korban. There could be 250 winners. There could be 10 winners. There could be only one winner. That we will find out tomorrow. If that interpretation is correct, then Korach's complaint is not against Moshe's leadership, but rather against one specific decision allowing only his brother to bring korbanot. Korach claims everyone can bring a korban. And Moshe says, okay, try it out and see what happens. Keep in mind, though, he doesn't tell Korach that anyone who fails this test is going to die. Now, at the very end of Pasuk Zayin, we have one very interesting phrase which introduces Pasuk Chet. The last line was, Rav Lechem B'nei Levi. The 250 people who came and gathered against Moshe were not only from the tribe of Levi. Korach was, and maybe some of the 250 were from the tribe of Levi. But according to the Pasuk, the 250 from all the different tribes. Now Moshe is going to make a specific complaint against those from the tribe of Levi, claiming that they're being hypocritical. And let's see this complaint now in Pasachet and Tet. Moshe now makes a specific complaint directed at Korach and the members of the group from the tribe of Levi. It wasn't enough that God separated you from all the tribes of Israel to bring you closer to Him. To do the work and service in God's Mishkan and God's Tabernacle, and to stand in front of the congregation to serve them. 
Bikashtem Gam Kuna, and he brought you and the entire tribe of Levi closer to him to serve in the Mikdash, to carry the Mishkan, and to guard it, and now you want to be Kohanim as well? If you follow the logic of Moshe Rabbeinu's rebuke, it makes a lot of sense. If Korach's entire complaint is everyone is holy, and everyone should have the equal opportunity to bring Korbanot, why didn't the group of Levi, that is part of the 250, why didn't they complain when they were given the special right to serve and carry the Mishkan? Why didn't they say back then that if everyone is holy, how come only Shevet Levi gets to carry the Mishkan? Why can't everybody carry the Mishkan? If everyone is holy and therefore everyone has equal rights in bringing Korbanot and serving in the temple, then when they were singled out and God gave them the special privilege of carrying the Mishkan, why didn't they complain and say it's not fair that only we get to carry the Mishkan? Why can't everyone do that? When it was in your favor, you didn't mind being singled out now that it's working against you, now you're complaining? Also, in Moshe Rabbeinu's rebuke, we have proof about what Korach was complaining about. We see from the last line, you're asking now to become priests. That means that the primary complaint of this group of 250 is that they want to be able to bring Korbanot. Therefore, the test of the Machtot is going to be a perfect test, and that will show the people who does God want to bring Korbanot. They're not questioning the existence of God. They're not questioning the reason why God took them out of Egypt. Rather, they're bothered by the fact that only Aaron and his sons can bring Korbanot. Moshe Rabbeinu says that that's your complaint. Let's give it a try. And the test for the 250 will be the test of the Machtot. To summarize that test, in Pasuk Yid Aleph, Moshe Rabbeinu now explains what needs to happen tomorrow. Therefore, you and your entire group, your entire 250, who are gathering against God, and what do you want from Aaron that you're complaining against him? I think that Pasuk proves our explanation that the first complaint of Korach and his 250 is against the exclusivity of only Aaron and his sons being able to bring Korbanot. Moshe Rabbeinu suggests a solution that should take place the next day. Pay attention, however, in Pasuk Yudbet, how the entire topic is going to undertake a radical change. Pasuk Yudbet, verse 12. Vaishlach Moshe likro ledatan velaviram veneliav veyomru lo naale. Moshe now summons Datan and Aviram, who we saw in our opening pasuk, but they had not been mentioned since then. He summons them to come for a hearing of some sort, and they answer back to Moshe Rabbeinu, "We're not coming up." Why is he summoning Datan Aviram? If he's summoning them to come and participate in the test of the Torah. Why is Moshe bothered by the fact they're not coming? Why is he inviting them? If they don't want to come, who needs them there? Listen to the response that comes together with the refusal to come to meet Moshe Rabbeinu. Pasuk Yud Gimel, verse 13. It was bad enough that you took us away from a land flowing of milk and honey. Datan Aviram are claiming that Moshe is taking them on a death march. From a political point of view, they don't like his leadership. When they left Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu promised them we're going to a land flowing in milk and honey, to an Eretz That's what God told him to tell the people at the burning bush. What have the people seen ever since they left Egypt? They've seen death and calamity. And this political group, complaining about Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership, is led by Tatan and Aviram. They're saying Moshe Rabbeinu is a leader, you failed. You promised us a promised land, a land flowing in milk and honey. Instead, we've received death in the desert. Because of this, Ramban takes this entire incident and says that it happened after the sin of the spies. Once it's clear to the people they're not going to the land of Israel 
and they're stuck in the desert for the next 40 years, that decree by God is what led to this revolt by Korah. The first Aliyah ends abruptly in the middle of Datan and Aviram's response to Moshe. We'll continue this topic when we study Shani, the second Aliyah, and we'll see that two different groups are emerging. One complaining about Moshe Rabbeinu's leadership, led by Datan and Aviram. Another group of the 250 men who want to bring Korbanot, who are complaining against the exclusivity of the priesthood to Aaron and his family. As we're going to see, the common denominator between these two groups is Korach himself, and that will help us understand what is it that Korach took. Why is Chumash writing in such an ambiguous manner? The question that we brought up in the beginning of our share, we're going to try and use to explain what underlying message Chumash is giving us in this form of presentation. Recall that Chumash is not simply a history book telling us here's what happened, but rather a book that tells us stories in a manner from which we can learn messages for all generations. As we continue our study, we're going to see how the elusive manner in which Chumash tells the story may enable us to understand how to deal with these types of complaints in future generations as well. We'll continue our study tomorrow with Sheni, the second Aliyah.